Hello, and welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's national feminist current affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy McMurtry. This show was produced on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders both past and present of these lands, as well as those who are hearing us from today. Street harassment is something most women know something about. Street harassment is fundamentally about power and control and impacts one's freedom of movement, mental health and well-being, and maintains a culture that makes more violent behaviours possible and acceptable. Street harassment is commonly thought of as a women's issue. However, as we'll hear from campaign group It's Not a Compliment, this limited understanding of who is impacted by street harassment limits how we can respond to it. We'll speak with Natasha Sharma and Akanksha Manjunath from It's Not a Compliment about their inclusive campaigns addressing street harassment. We also discuss how the pandemic is impacting people's experiences of street harassment and the kinds of responses that It's Not a Compliment are looking at to understand this issue better. Following this conversation, we'll be hearing from two of the speakers who spoke at the National University Staff Assembly held on August 24th. This assembly was hosted by the National Higher Education Network. This network was formed during the COVID-19 pandemic in response to the recent cuts and austerity measures taken by the higher education system. The assembly was convened to discuss a motion to act against the higher education reforms, supporting national actions and the building of a movement in the struggle against the austerity in the education system. First, we hear from Professor Devlina Ghosh, from the Social and Political Sciences Program at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's then followed by Annette Herrera, the Acting Vice President, Professional Staff, National Tertiary Education Union of Melbourne University Branch. Hi, my name is Akanksha and I'm the Campaign Director at It's Not a Compliment. I'm Natasha and I'm the Research and Policy Officer at It's Not a Compliment. So we actually started... We launched last year around November. We all actually met, at least me and my co-founder, when we were doing a fellowship for Democracy in Colour. This was supposed to be just a small activity. You know, we go out and, you know, raise a bit of awareness about street harassment. But we decided to take it, let's just say, 100, 200 steps further and start a campaign about it. And we haven't stopped since. It's been around nine months since we've been around. We're turning one soon in November. Um, and we've grown quite significantly since we've been around. And so when we were doing research about, you know, street harassment or issues that we could campaign on, uh, we realized that there is no existing campaign that focuses on um, on street harassment, particularly one that is intersectional, and hence one of the main reasons we started the campaign. Um, and the second reason is that we share stories because stories are how we relate to each other. Um, and, you know, so sometimes you might see a story of street harassment and you might not have had the same experience, but you can still empathize with that, with that story because of the feelings those, that, that incident would have triggered, if that makes sense. So, you know, in, in that, you know, you talk a lot about uh, wanting to raise awareness and use storytelling to do that. What kinds of messages do you want to get out or are you getting out there about street harassment? Well, A, the fact that it is not acceptable and you know fighting its normalization 
and B, developing community understanding of the fact that it's not just women and girls, for example, who face street harassment. It's also members of the LGBTQIA plus community, people of color, people with disability, neurodiversities. Like, there's a whole range of people who face harassment on the street. Number three is that um, criminalizing street harassment, for example, will only lead to over policing, and which is why we are focusing on developing, you know, community attitudes, community understanding, but also changing community attitudes about the acceptability of street harassment. And, and see how and encourage people to see how they can we can all ensure safer streets for each other, therefore creating safer streets for all. Yeah, I love that. So it's really about building the capacity of the community to respond to this as an issue. We also recently launched our bystander intervention training. Um, we've actually had a few training sessions already uh, led by our training and events team on how you can be an active bystander. Obviously, we're not encouraging you to intervene if it's dangerous to do so, but just different methods that can be used to, you know, to alleviate the situation, especially for the person being harassed. So that sounds like a that sounds like a really powerful kind of program. What kinds of things? What kinds of training are you doing? What? How are you teaching people they should they could respond to street based harassment and violence? We have tried to highlight possible safety issues around these different intervention methods. And the participants are encouraged to have, you know, open discussions about their own concerns and what they think might arise for them because we've got our own method uh, that we encourage people to, like, you know, follow if, if, safe, if it's safe to do so. But also um, some of the participants have come up with these other, other methods that are just as awesome. Um, so I guess it's about giving power to the bystander to make them realize that they they can do something about it if they choose to do so because I don't know about you all, but there's so many times where I've been in situations where I've faced street harassment and everyone around me is really quiet and it's kind of dehumanizing in a way. Um, but also at the same time, sometimes I wonder if it's because the bystanders thought that it's not safe to intervene, checking in when you witness it, um, and, you know, offering resources. Another one is asking for help. So get other bystanders involved and, you know, collectively um, address the harasser. Another one is interrupt. So creating a distraction, you know, like it might be something as simple as going up to the person and going, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Um, Your mom called me the other day, you know, just so it surprises the harasser. That kind of takes away a bit of their power and makes the, the person who was being harassed um, know that they're not alone. Another one would be capturing it. This one is a bit tricky, but like documenting or collecting evidence. And the most direct method that we encourage is just calling it out, so confronting street harassment directly. Obviously, this last one, being the most direct, also has the potential to you know, flare out um, more than the other methods that we have suggested. But um, so it guess it all depends on the bystander and what they decide to do in that situation. From what we've seen so far, from the stories we've gotten and the data we've received, people really want that. They say that bystander intervention is one of the things that they would have really wanted when experiencing harassment. They want non-police community intervention, and that's what makes them feel safest. So if we're able to empower people to feel like they can intervene in any way, even if it's just comforting someone afterwards during an incident of harassment, it really improves 
the well-being um, of the person who experienced the harassment um, make the situation much less traumatic for them. Women on the line. So I guess, you know, looking at the pandemic, I suppose people might think that street harassment is less of an issue, particularly in Melbourne where we're in lockdown. Um, But it's not really the case, is it? What are some of the stories that you're hearing at the moment? The pandemic is a really interesting issue at the moment. So in a sense, they're correct. Harassment has, people are experiencing significantly lower amounts of harassment purely because of the fact that they're only leaving the house for one hour a day. So there's just less of an opportunity. Not only are they leaving the house for less time, but they have less of a distance that they can go. So they're not coming into contact with many people. And a lot of people are really relieved about that. They feel like more comfortable um, going outside because people have to keep a distance from them. And for some people, it's been quite a positive experience. They've you know, not been experiencing harassment much at all. But I do, but in the, you know, in a similar vein, the har- when people do experience harassment and catcalling, which does still happen during the pandemic, it's even more obvious. And I think people are especially sensitive to it you know, you're leaving the house, it's quarantine, you're wearing a tracksuit and a mask and people can barely see you and they still make the choice to call out to you, you know, something sexual or, you know, anything else. And it's kind of like, what can I give you? A, a virus, that's it. Although for the vast majority of the population, it's been, from what we've seen so far, it's been a positive thing in terms of reducing the level of harassment for quite a large minority, um, they have in, experienced like an increase in racialized street harassment. People, you know, making offensive gestures, implying that they're about to give them coronavirus, moving to the other side of the road, you know, excessively distancing. So it's been a, a very polarizing situation depending on who you are in this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds horrifying. And I guess that really leads me to think about that kind of um, statement that we often commonly hear that we're all in this together, implying that, you know, we all kind of have the similar experience. But, you know, this, I guess the stories that you're telling really indicate something different. Yeah. So it's absolutely harassment is never the same for anyone. People, you know, there's so many aspects of intersectionality um, in one person's identity that their experience of harassment and the reasons they're being harassed are usually not exactly the same as somebody else. And it's uh, not really something that's been looked at in much detail. Mm. So is that something that that uh, you folks are looking at at the moment? Like, sounds like you're kind of looking at interested in looking at some of those nuances. Yeah, definitely. So we we know that there's been research on harassment in Australia, but a lot of that just purely looks at gendered harassment. You know, men harassing women, and it's sexual in nature. But we know that the reality of that is, you know, people who might not identify as women um, get harassed. People are harassed for different reasons, you know, because of their gender expression, because of their race, because they might be visibly disabled, because they look like um, or they sound like they're from an immigrant background. So what we're really trying to see is who's vulnerable here and how is it affecting their health and well-being and the fact that a lot of people immediately think of street harassment and purely think of catcalling um 
we're trying to broaden that definition. So I understand at the moment you've got, you're doing a survey around the impacts of COVID-19 and um, street-based um, harassment and violence. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so the survey was originally developed just to look at the effects of street harassment. Um, we were trying to address some gaps in the literature that's previously been written on this topic. So things like uh, we haven't really had a lot of information on bystander intervention. You know, do people normally intervene and how does it feel when people do intervene? We don't have much data on reporting. You know, have people reported? What has their experience been when they've reported an incident? And has there been any outcomes to that? We don't have much data on minority groups experiencing harassment. We don't have much data on harassment that's racial in nature or transphobic in nature or homophobic in nature or ableist. Uh, we don't have any of that data. And that's really what we're trying to look at, like those intersections um, and really delve deeper into the issue than research in the past. But since the advent of coronavirus, we thought it would be really critical to add that in to our research as well. So now we want to look at how has the experience of harassment changed since coronavirus, you know, has become an integral part of our lives, because we know that things aren't just going to go back to the way that they were. This is going to affect us for, you know, far into the future. And we're trying to see what things look like now and potentially what they may look like in the future due to this pandemic. And the pandemic itself has brought a lot of things to the forefront of public discussion, like racial, um, racially motivated attacks and racism in general. So it's a really critical time to be looking at this data. Yeah, so if you've ever experienced harassment in Victoria, we really want to hear from you. So you can find our survey on any of our social media pages and uh, it'll be really critical for you to get your voice and your input out there. So we'd love to hear from you. For Instagram, it's it's not a compliment. Melb. Um, and for Facebook, it's just it's not a compliment. Women on the Line. And right around Australia, you've been listening to Women on the Line. We've been speaking with Natasha Sharma and Akanksha Mandana from It's Not a Compliment about their inclusive campaigns addressing street harassment and measures they're taking to respond to the unique challenges being presented during COVID-19. We'll now hear from Professor Devlina Ghosh from the Social and Political Sciences Program at the University of Technology, Sydney. She will then be followed by Annette Herrera, the Acting Vice President, Professional Staff, NTEU of Melbourne University Branch, speaking at the National University Staff Assembly held on August 24th convened by the National Higher Education Network in discussion of taking action against funding cuts and COVID-19 austerity measures. And all of you I know are, are um, uh, aware of Raymond Connell's idea of the good university. The university that prioritizes the public good that offers opportunities to those disadvantaged by the lottery of birth, which produces responsible citizens concerned with social justice and the social good and which is staffed by academics and professional staff who are valued for their dedication to the core business of research and teaching and not ground down by the iron cage of precarity and a managerial audit culture. So when I joined the university system more than 25 years ago, it wasn't a golden age, it wasn't a perfect era for the tertiary sector. But we are now in a, in a phase which I stupidly never thought we would arrive in 
the neoliberal defunding of universities means that what I've just said, which should be seen as a general motherhood statement of what universities should do, has become a quaint, naive, and laughable impracticality. And if you should, were to say it to people in power, they would look at you as if you were crazy, you know, the public good as opposed to profit. I mean, surely, you know, there's not even a choice there as far as they're concerned. The current world in which the, in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides uh, highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. Rather than serving the public good, universities are now complicit in creating, legitimizing and reproducing inequalities, not only for the staff who are essential to keep universities going, but for the huge numbers of students who leave school for higher education, hoping for a better future for themselves and for actually you know, creative learning. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. I, there is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. And we are not alone in this process. I mean, um, I come from India where universities are under sustained attack. There is resistance to this model all over the world. For example, the student movements all over the world calling for a decolonizing of the curricula and the breaking down of the continuing academic hegemony of the global north. The open access movements aiming to ensure public access to research outputs free of charge or other barriers. And recent teachings at institutions like Jawaharlal Nehru University in India, where large numbers of people from all over the world came to Delhi to actually have revolutionary teachings with the students when the authorities tried to close down the campus. The recent case for also of the London School of Economics uh, cleaners, who won a, a victory against the privatization of their services, is a stark example of what happens when the fundamental collective nature of the university is compromised. I mean, cleaning is a crucial support service without which staff and students would be unable to undertake their work effectively. And therefore, its privatization is something that should concern all of us. And the standards, work standards, the work conditions of the cleaners should also concern all of us. I speak to you as an academic who spent over 25 years in the sector. I know I speak to colleagues who've lost their jobs, whose working conditions have deteriorated, who have been and still are on precarious contracts, putting in vast unpaid hours to support their students and keep their jobs. This pandemic has revealed starkly that higher education is at a crossroads. It could become a dystopic realm of corporate culture, of audit culture, academic capitalism. It could be ruled by managerialism, by money, by profit, and the perpetuation of inequality.
or we can organize and resist and fight for a democratic, truthful, collegial, creative, and cooperative system where academic and professional work is valued and rewarded, where academics and students engage and thrive in a free exchange of intellectual and creative ideas, where we work all together for the public good. When our children or grandchildren ask us what we did when our higher education system withered, let us be able to say, whether we win or lose this war, we fought, we resisted and did not take it lying down. In Bertolt Brecht's words, we continue to sing about the dark times. Thank you. Women on the line. I would also like to acknowledge that I work and live on stolen land, the land of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and pay my respects to indigenous colleagues at the assembly today. Today's National Assembly represents the best of grassroots rank and file unionism, and I want to acknowledge the union activists from the National Higher Education Network for their efforts to put this assembly on. We're here today because higher education is deliberately being attacked by the Morrison government. Our unis are being mismanaged by VCs that act like CEOs, and we need radical action to change the course our government and our universities are on. I'd like to provide some reflections as a union activist at the University of Melbourne. Over the past two years, University of Melbourne casualized staff and HDR students, many of them also international students and migrants to this country, have been engaging in member-led organizing through escalating actions to call out wage theft, fight for dignity of work, and end differential treatment of the 73% insecure workforce in the richest university in Australia. Our union activists and delegates are working to build union power by politically transforming the workplace and university. We've come a long way and we continue to learn the importance of relational organizing to build union power, one workplace, one school, one faculty at a time. Yes, we're fighting for working conditions, but we are also building a base of workers who stand up for social, economic and climate justice issues important to our community. I don't need to tell you that we are in one of the deepest economic and public health crises since World War II. And while unemployment continues to rise, the coalition government has made a choice to underinvest in our universities, has made a choice to attack our university community. They have excluded universities from JobKeeper, excluded university casualized staff from JobSeeker, and cruelly excluded temporary migrants, mainly international students, from the wage subsidies both programs provide. The education Minister Dantian and Scott Morrison's government are social engineering inequality through free fee hikes, allowing our teaching and research to be dictated by market forces. This government would rather spend $6 billion building a white elephant of a gas pipeline that will destroy the climate instead of investing in education and investing in our future. You come here today, you coming here today from across the country is a step towards building future majority actions to say to the government, cronyism must stop. And to say to university executives that, that economic rationalism is a failure and that mass reinvestment in our universities is necessary for our recovery now and post pandemic. We as workers all have a role to play in majority actions like a strike, withholding our labor to enact this type of economic and political change. And to get there organizing, not just mobilizing involves hard work. It's hard work to engage university workers and students that think this fight is futile, that are beaten down by university job cuts and the uncertainty of what next year will be like. 
And we need to find our motivation and look to each other to build these skills. I want to tell you a few of the reasons why I'm motivated to build towards strike action and towards social, economic, and political change. I'm Mexican-American. I come from a working class background, and I was first in my family to attend a four-year college. And like most in the U.S. who attend college, I was left with crippling student loan debt. So what will these fee hikes and reduced teaching funding mean for students who are first in family and who come from migrant families? TN's fee hikes will also have a detrimental impact on our indigenous students, many of whom are enrolled in the courses that will have fee hikes. More than half of indigenous students will have more expensive course fees because of these reforms. And so what do these cuts mean for our commitment to accessible tertiary education for indigenous students? And for international students in Australia, their plight is a humanitarian crisis. I see students wrapped around a city block in Melbourne by the hundreds waiting for food parcels at the local church every weekend. They too want to complete their education and are skipping meals so they can afford their studies. How will international students survive this year? I'm committed to building union power towards strike action because access to higher education is not a privilege. It is a human right. And for many potential and future students, it is a social equalizer. A strike, legal or otherwise, large enough to create a crisis for both our university elites and our government is needed to demand a massive reinvestment in higher education that is equitable and inclusive and that works for the public good. I ask this National Assembly of Workers that after today that you commit to building towards majority actions. And I want you to first look around your campus and push the boundaries of what university community means and who is included. I want you to embrace social justice unionism that defends the employment rights of university staff while fighting for the rights and needs of international and domestic students, migrant workers, and unemployed workers across our community. Build bridges with parents, with alumni, with other sectors that are all being attacked by our government. We all have a stake in radical reinvestment and a transformation of higher education and building towards a strike is the best chance for us to achieve this. You've been listening to Natasha Sharma and Akanksha Manjanath from It's Not a Compliment about their inclusive campaigns addressing street harassment and measures they're taking to respond to the unique challenges being presented during COVID-19. You then heard from Professor Devlina Ghosh from the Social and Political Sciences Program at the University of Technology, Sydney, followed by Annette Herrera, the Acting Vice President of Professional Staff, NTU Melbourne University Branch speaking at the National University Staff Assembly held on August 24th. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally by the Community Radio Network. Special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. The theme song for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Kavara. I'm Amy McMurtry. Thanks for tuning in to the show.